Last week, we celebrated Easter. We celebrated along with millions of other people globally the most important day in history, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the day that he appeared to the women and to the disciples, the day that changed everything. And so this morning, I want to reflect on one of the earliest passages written about the resurrection. As I say that, you might think we're going to look at one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, because of course they talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Or you might think we're going to look at the book of Acts, because that's the story of how the early church grew. But we're actually going to go back even earlier and look at 1 Corinthians, because 1 Corinthians was written even before those books. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them up, and we're just going to work our way through this amazing passage. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what we're reading before we get into it. 1 Corinthians was written uh, in 50, between 54 and 55 A.D. Uh, it's pretty specific dating, and there's lots of ample evidence to prove that that's the case. Uh, it's one of the first letters that we have. It's written before the four Gospels. Keep in mind, Jesus died in 30 A.D., and this Gospel, or 1 Corinthians, was written 20, between 20 and 25 years after Jesus' life. So it's very close to the source. This is a letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Corinth is a city, uh, and there's a church in, in this city in Greece. And, tr- and Paul is writing a letter to these people. And there's lots of issues in this church. As you read through 1 Corinthians, it seems like every chapter Paul is dealing with a specific issue. In chapter 15, he turns to one of the major issues. And it's that some are doubting, some in the church are doubting the resurrection. They're doubting the resurrection of the body. And some are even doubting the resurrection of Jesus himself. And so Paul is addressing that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now we find ourselves in similar territory today, don't we? Many people today who consider themselves Christians would would openly admit that they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, the actual resurrection of Jesus. Um, There are those who take an alternative view and say the resurrection is more symbolic or it's more of a metaphor or an image to this new life that we're supposed to experience, but it's it's not a historical event. As I was looking into this, I ran across a BBC article that was just recently published. Um, a poll done on British Christians says a quarter of Christians in Britain don't believe in the resurrection. And I imagine statistics are pretty similar here in Canada. In the mainline church in England, they see that up to a third of the English priests don't believe in the resurrection anymore. It's, it's incredible. So I think what Paul has to say to us here today um, has really strong has really significant implications and applications for us even 2,000 years later after the letter is written. People are still asking the same question. Do we really have to believe the resurrection of Jesus? What we're experiencing here in our 21st century secular culture is not new. This is, we're not just products. This isn't just because of the Enlightenment. People from the very beginning have been asking this very question. So let's work our way through this important uh, passage of Scripture. Now, it's a bit small on there. But uh, we'll do our best. Here's what Paul has to say. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, uh, that's Peter, And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, also as to one abnormally born. 
For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. So in this section, Paul is reminding the Corinthian believers what he preached. He's reminding them of what he calls first importance. What is most core to their faith? He's reminding them of the gospel. The gospel, of course, is good news. He's reminding them, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is most important. So if it's crucial to Paul and the early church, it ought to be crucial to us. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be as close to the early church as I can possibly get. These are the people that knew Jesus firsthand. They are the ones that spread the good news. They are the ones that planted churches. These are the first-generation Christians. So if we can understand how they thought and how they practiced, I think we're, we're doing a pretty good job. I took, I took uh, my degree in history, and, and a lot of my focus was on the early church because I wanted to be as close to the source as possible. The closer you are to the source, the closer you are to the truth, right? So what's of first importance to them is of, is of first importance to us. Verse 2, Paul says, this is the gospel that saves you. Paul says, you need to hold firmly to this message. Your very existence as a believer is at stake here. Any deviation from this gospel, and what does he say? He says, you will have believed in vain. What he says here is the bedrock. It is the cornerstone. It is the core essentials of what it means to follow Jesus and to be a Christian. Paul says something very interesting in verse 3. He says, what I received, I passed on to you. And then he reiterates this similar uh, in verse 11. He says, whether I or they, this is what we preach. So it begs us to ask the question, what did he receive? What is Paul referring to here? What's he talking about? This isn't something that he just made up. This isn't his own opinion. This didn't originate with him. He got it from someone, from somewhere. So the majority of scholars believe that what Paul's referring to here is the earliest creed that we have. It is a creed that was circulated throughout the early church and it was passed on through the disciples. Uh, I want to quote here the Oxford Companion of the Bible, and you have that in your notes. Um, the earliest record of these appearances is to be found in 1 Corinthians 5, 3-7, a tradition that Paul received after his apostolic call, certainly no later than his, not later than his visit to Jerusalem in 35. Again, remember, Jesus died and rose again in 30. And scholars believe that this was written, you know, within five years after. N.T. Wright, we quote him a lot. He's a world-renowned New Testament scholar. He says this, This is the kind of foundation story with which a community is not at, all, is not at liberty to tamper. It was probably formulated within the first two or three years after Easter itself, since it was already in formulaic form when Paul received it. And then I want to quote Michael uh, Goulder. He's an atheist. He's not even a Christian, but he's a historian. And he looks at the facts, and this is what he says. It goes back at least to what Paul was taught when he was converted a couple years after the crucifixion. So what Paul received was something that he received very, very, uh, something that was, um, well, this creed that was put together was put together very, very, very early. It existed probably before Paul even became a believer himself. And he learned it from the disciples after his conversion. So Paul's making a reference to what he's received because he wants to make sure that the doubting Corinthians know that he didn't just make this up. This isn't his own thing. This is an authentic gospel. This is a reliable gospel. 
This was the gospel given to him by the disciples, those who lived with and ate with and heard everything that Jesus said and did and taught. Many skeptics will say that the resurrection was a story invented hundreds and hundreds of years after the event itself. But in saying that, they are blatantly ignoring a text like this. This formulaic creed is the earliest source we have, and it was written uh, just several years after the life of Christ. So what is this creed? What is this gospel that Paul's referring to? It's really quite simple. It is an announcement of the key historical events of Jesus. Four things. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. And Christ appeared. This is a belief that is rooted in historical events. This is, this is the core of what it means to be a Christian. If you don't believe this, as Paul says, you believe in vain. Believing these historical events are central to what it means to be a Christian. So uh, there's something else that I want to bring out uh, in this little creed here. Uh, notice a statement that's really important. It says, according to the scriptures, and it says it twice, according to the scriptures. So it means that this didn't just come out of nowhere. He's referencing, this creed is referencing uh, the Old Testament, referencing the Hebrew scriptures. This gospel is a gospel that is deeply rooted in another story, the story of Israel. And when we neglect this fact, uh, we lose so much about who Jesus is and what his life and death and resurrection meant. Remember, during Jesus' life, he is constantly pointing back to the Old Testament. He's constantly saying, I am the fulfillment of these things that you know so well in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. The Gospel writers, especially in Matthew, he is constantly talking about Jesus and then giving a, an, old quest, an, an Old Testament reference to, to explain what Jesus just did or who he was. They're constantly pointing back to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew Scriptures. Remember the story at the end of Luke. Two men are walking. It's called the road to Emmaus. They're walking. The tomb is empty. They haven't met the resurrected Jesus yet, and they're confused, and they're bewildered, and they're talking amongst themselves. And then a third person shows up, starts walking with them. And they say to this person, we don't know what happened. And this person starts explaining to them. They later realize that this person was Jesus himself. And what does Jesus do on the road to Emmaus? He opens up the scriptures and he says, let me explain to you what has just happened prove to you that this was all meant to be. Jesus point himself pointed to the Old Testament scriptures. So a big part of the gospel that Paul received and passed on and that the early church believed is rooted in the story of Israel. So we would do well to know the story of Israel ourselves, to pick up our Bibles and to read the Old Testament and to understand and to see the, the foreshadowing of Christ in the Old Testament. So here's the point. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was not just a random event. It was planned it was prophesied and it was patterned all throughout the Old Testament through the story and the life of Israel. Let's go back to the creed. Jesus died. Nobody argues about this. Everybody understands that Jesus died. Jesus was buried in a tomb. And again, this is not hard to justify. This is what you do with dead people. You bury them. Jesus rose from the grave. Well, this is where it starts getting a little bit harder to swallow. Uh, we're 21st century enlightened people. How are we supposed to believe such a thing. How are we supposed to do this? You know, believe it or not, the disciples struggled with the same thing. They had no paradigm for resurrection. They weren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. Remember when the women saw the tomb that was empty and they, the women came back? The disciples were bewildered. They could not understand. They could not wrap their head around a resurrection. They had to see Jesus before they believed. It sounded to them like nonsense, one of the gospel writers said writes, 
They didn't believe until they saw the resurrected Jesus. And then Jesus appeared to many people. And these appearances are what validate the resurrection. It's not just, the empty t- it's not just that the tomb was empty because that's not enough evidence for us. It's that people actually saw Jesus alive again, and that verifies everything. So let's talk about these appearances. Uh, Jesus showed up to Peter, to the disciples, to 500 people, to James and the apostles, and then to Paul. I want you to notice something interesting in verse 6 here. Paul says, most of whom, or Jesus, uh, the appearance happened to 500 brothers and sisters, most of whom are still alive. Well, that's an interesting statement. Why would Paul bother to write that down? Why include that? Why bother? Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to doubters. He's writing to some people in the Corinthian church that don't believe this, right? And so what he's saying here, he's saying, this is an open-ended invitation for the Corinthians to go inquire for themselves. Keep in mind, this is a letter written only 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So Paul's saying essentially to the church, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe the apostles, if you don't believe the testimony of the early church, well then, go back and talk to some of these people. Go find them. Go verify it for yourself. Let me give you an example. Let's say I stand up here and I say to you, guys, 25 years ago, I was beamed up in an alien ship. And they dissected my brain, and I spent a day talking with the aliens, and then they beamed me back down, and this is a real event that happened to me. 25 years ago, 1993, I mean, that's not that long ago. It's not, we can all kind of think back to where we were in 1993. You're going to think I'm absolutely crazy, right? But then I say to you, but it wasn't just me. There was 500 other people. We all had the same experience. Most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. And if you're interested, if you actually think there's even a hint of truth to what I just said to you, you're going to go talk to these people, right? And either very quickly disprove my crazy story or else all of a sudden go, well, maybe this, this did happen. That explains a lot about Chris, right? So that's, that, that's what's going on here when Paul says most of whom are still alive. He's inviting them. Go talk to them. Go talk to them. So in the Gospels, the women, they find the tomb. They're specifically named. At the, in, uh, in Mark's Gospel, there's three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. It doesn't just say three women, it actually names the three women. This is really important because what Mark is doing is saying, here's the three women, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. This is, this, for ancient writers, this is their way of putting in a footnote, right? You know how you write an essay and you put a footnote to show where you got your information from? They didn't do that back then, but they dropped names. It's called name dropping. Go talk to them. Go talk to them, he says. Uh, So Paul then mentions a few more specific names. Uh, Jesus appears to Peter, to the Twelve, to James, and to Paul. So I want to camp here for a little bit because I think it's important uh, to talk about this. For me, one of the greatest proofs that the resurrection happened is the change that happens in people. So let's compare who these people were before Jesus died and who they were after they witnessed the resurrection. And let's Let's look at them. So Peter, the first one. Well, what do we know about Peter? Peter's in the inner circle of Jesus' closest disciples, right? There's 12 disciples and there's three that really cling on to Jesus. Peter is one of them, right? Uh, Jesus tells Peter, uh, you are the rock on which I will build my church. Peter's the most passionate of all the disciples, yet he's often uh, sticking his foot in his mouth. At one point, he is the first to acknowledge that Jesus is Messiah. And then a verse later, he's rebuking Jesus for talking so much about his death. Peter is the first person to say that he'll never desert Jesus. He'll never deny Jesus. 
that he will go with Jesus to the death. And yet, he is the one, and we all know this, he is the one that denies Jesus three times and then the rooster crows. So Peter shows signs of promise, yet he's very much a coward when things get dangerous, when things get hot. During Easter weekend, Peter doesn't look like a man who's ready to lead the apostles and start a worldwide movement that takes over the world. He doesn't look like that, does he? He's embarrassed that he even knows Jesus. Well, what happened? Look at Peter afterwards. Acts 1, we see Peter takes the reins as the leader of the apostles. He's the leader. Acts 2, the first sermon ever preached. 3,000 men, not including women and children, come to faith because of Peter's bold proclamation. What does Peter say? God raised Jesus to life and we are witnesses of this fact. Acts 3, Peter begins healing people. He continues preaching and leading people to Jesus. Peter then becomes persecuted. He's beaten, he's jailed, he's flogged. In Acts 5.41, it says that they rejoiced because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. What happened? This is the same Peter that denied even knowing Jesus and now he's out there preaching and rejoicing in his sufferings and in his persecution. Peter went to his death. He was eventually crucified and it says that he said, he quoted, uh, I'm not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord. And so he's crucified upside down. This is the same guy that denied Jesus three times. How do you go from coward to the rock? Literally the rock on which Christ builds his church. Something happens. He met the resurrected Jesus. It's the only possible explanation. Let's talk about James. We don't know a lot about James uh, before, before um, Easter. We know um, James is not a disciple. He's never mentioned as a disciple. He's a brother of Jesus, but not a disciple. In Mark 6, uh, Jesus goes into his hometown and he preaches there. And remember, he's not received well. He's not received well by his family or by the people in his hometown. It says in verse 3 that they took offense at him. And Jesus says, only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. This would have most certainly included his brothers including James. In John 7, it gets even more specific. Uh, look at the skepticism here. Jesus' brothers say to him, leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't be famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, go show yourself to the world. Even his brothers don't believe him. This is all we know about James before the resurrection. What do we know about James afterwards? Well, in Acts 1-4, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers we're in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit. Well, how in the world did they get there? These guys never believed in Jesus beforehand. So why do they now believe in him? And why are they waiting for the Holy Spirit to show up at Pentecost? What drew them to this place? In Galatians 2.9, this is a letter from Paul. Paul says, he's just telling a story. And he says, James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. So immediately in the early church, James, Peter, and John are recognized as like the three key figures in the early church. In Acts 15, James is a spokesperson for the church, making big decisions. In Acts 21, when Paul returns from his journey, he goes and reports to James. The book of James, he even writes a book that made it into the scriptures. It begins with a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude is also Jesus' brother. The beginning of Jude says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Jude was crucified. James was stoned to death. They both went from brother skeptics to church leaders, Bible writers, martyrs. What happened? How do you explain this? 
They met the resurrected Jesus. It's the only possible explanation for what happened here. Let's look at Paul. Paul's name was Saul uh, before he met Jesus. He was a Pharisee. He was the best of the best. He was so strict. He was so um, committed to his religious values, so much so that he killed Christians. He persecuted Christians. He thought that was the right thing to do. He was the best of the best. This is what he writes about himself in the book of Philippians. He says of himself, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee as for zeal, I persecuted the church as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul was the best. He had reached the top, upper level of his religious system. The best of the best. But look what he says right after this. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul becomes the most effective missionary the world has ever seen. He plants churches all over the Roman Empire. His writings comprise most of the books of the New Testament. Paul is jailed. He's beaten. He's flogged. He's shipwrecked. He's starved. He's stoned. He's bitten by snakes. He's caught in riots. And eventually Paul is beheaded for his faith. Something dramatic happened to Paul. He met the resurrected Jesus. We know about this in Acts 9. He's on the road to Damascus and he sees this vision. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul had a genuine encounter with the risen Christ, and it changed everything. And he's the one writing this passage in 1 Corinthians. One more. Let's look at the disciples in general. Like Peter, they said they would never disown Jesus, yet most of them ran away when he was arrested. Remember Thursday night, Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus arrested. They flee. They're gone. This is not a group of people that are, have a lot of courage and who are ready to stand by Jesus. They don't even have the guts to go to Jerusalem. Only Peter and John do. They don't go to the tomb. It's the women. They send the women to go to the tomb because they're too scared. They're hiding out, right? And then the women come back and they don't believe the women. What are you talking about? You guys are crazy, right? This is not a group of people ready to begin a worldwide movement of faith. These are men that are hiding and scared. They are confused. They are disillusioned. I think we can confidently say this is not a group of people who stole a body, told a lie, and spread this thing, and spread this huge religion that we see. This is not a group of people capable of doing that. They don't have it in them. Plus, who would be willing to die for a lie, even if they made this up? Every single one of the disciples died a martyr's death and a pretty terrible one at that. If you know it's a lie, why would you put yourself through that? It doesn't make any sense. I want to quote here uh, New Testament scholar Pinchas Lapide. It's in your notes, but I think it's up here as well. The scared, frightened band of apostles, which was just about to throw away everything in order to flee in despair to Galilee, when these peasants, shepherds, and fishermen who betrayed and denied their master and then failed him miserably suddenly could be changed overnight into a confident mission society, convinced of salvation and able to work with much more success after Easter than before Easter, then no vision or hallucination is sufficient to explain such a revolutionary transformation. How did this group of terrified, bewildered people turn 180 degrees and become bold proclaimers of Jesus Christ as Lord and start a worldwide movement that within 300 years took over the Roman Empire? 
How do you explain it? There's only one way to explain it. They actually met the resurrected Jesus, and it changed them. They became totally convinced that he's Lord. For me, the explosion of the church and how quickly it happened and in what circumstances it happened in is one of the greatest proofs for me of the historical reality of the resurrection. Because how else could you explain it? And so what do we do with this this morning? I've been reflecting on this passage this week and I've been reminded of a few things. First of all, my faith in Jesus is rooted in historical events, not wishful thinking. I recognize that it takes faith to believe in Jesus. I absolutely recognize that it takes faith, but this is not a blind, naive, uninformed faith. It's not. When I examine the evidence, I become convinced that this is true. I love that we have a letter written by Paul that's only 25 years after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. I love that he that Paul is quoting a creed that he received from the disciples themselves, a creed that was circulated throughout the churches and formulated within the first few years of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. I love that the gospel is rooted in a bigger story. When I read the Old Testament, I see foreshadowing of Christ everywhere I read. And to me, it's just an amazing thing how, how the Old Testament constantly is pointing to Jesus. I love that people's lives were changed when they realized that Jesus was alive. And I love that Jesus is still doing that today. I see people's lives changed by Jesus. I see addicts find freedom. I see hopeless find meaning. I see the poor and the destitute find comfort. I see the broken find healing. And these are things that I've experienced myself in my own life. And so my faith, it's not just an intellectual exercise. It is also a genuine experience with the living God who is at work in my life and at work in the world around me and in those around me. So I want to encourage you today. If you have given your allegiance to, a li- you, if you have given your allegiance to Jesus, you've given your allegiance to a living God who is alive and who is at work. And I want to encourage you this morning, press into him. Devote your lives to him. Let him transform you. Let him allow you to become the person that you were designed to become in the first place. This isn't some sort of Sunday morning ritual that we do. This is, this is our whole life. We are disciples of Jesus. We are following him with every aspect of our life because he is alive and this is for real. It's not a hobby. So dive in. Devote yourselves to him. Let yourselves be transformed. Experience his presence. Grow in your faith. Let your roots grow down deep so that your lives will be fruitful and multiply. And we can share that with our world, share that with our neighbors, and share that with our city because we worship a living God who is alive and at work 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, and right now. Alive and at work. So that's what I want to leave you with. I can't think of a better way for us to end this service than to gather around the table, to take communion together. I think we have it up there. Um, You go back a couple chapters in 1 Corinthians, and uh, Paul says this, I received from the Lord. Interesting, Paul didn't make this up either. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And then he goes and instructs the Corinthians how to uh, participate in the breaking of bread and in the sharing of the wine. So I'm going to read it to you. What I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so the church has been doing this ever since the very beginning. And we gather with millions of other people here this morning to do this as well. To take the cracker and to take the juice and to proclaim that we worship a living God who is alive and at work in our lives. So if you believe this, I invite you to come forward. I'm going to have Doug come on over here and I'll be over here. Um, and then if you, you grab the cracker and the juice and then we will partake of it uh, all together. Let me pray before we do this. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you. You are our Lord and our master and you are alive and you are at work. And we are so grateful, Lord. We are so grateful that you've revealed yourself to us in the scriptures, in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds. God, we desire to love you with every fiber of our being, with our hearts, with our souls, with our strength, with our minds. God, we want to follow you and love you well. Thank you for your life and your death and your resurrection, and we proclaim that together this morning around this table. In Jesus' name, amen.